Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura. Murder. If our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners. And we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. This episode contains depictions of violence and sexual violence that might be too stressful for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Ivy League Murders. And we have a great episode for you this week. It is about Ted Bundy. And I think we're all aware that Ted Bundy has been covered very much on Netflix. There has been a Bundy binge, I would say. So it's hard to know where to start with Ted Bundy. There's probably more coverage on Bundy than any other serial killer in history. Bundy was active in the 70s and stands out even in an age of serial killers. Ramirez, Son of Sam, the Hillside Stranglers, to name just a few. The term serial killer had not even been coined yet when Bundy was active. Today, we have a unique opportunity to talk to Kevin Sullivan, an expert on Ted Bundy. Kevin Sullivan has written 15 books, including several about Ted Bundy. Kevin is also featured on several specials and documentaries. Kevin, we are honored to have you on Ivy League Murders. Well, thank you all for having me. And I know we're going to have a a good time talking about Ted Bundy and the case. And I'm just happy to be here and and happy to get into it with you. Let me ask, you are not alone in your fascination with Ted Bundy, but what drew you particularly to him? What was that moment? And when? Yes, yes. Well, I should kind of back up and say a couple of things about why I have an interest in true crime at all. When I was uh, 10 years old, I picked up a book off my father's shelf. It was called The World's Worst Murderers by Charles Franklin. This was 1965. It had just come out in England, this book, and then they had the American edition. Within a few months, my father had a copy and he read the book. I wasn't aware that he had read the book. I just found it on his shelf in the uh, library. But what was interesting is I had never read an adult book. I was still reading kids' books. And I I took this book off and I opened it up. I was fascinated by what it said at 10-year-olds. They don't know a lot about crime. They don't know a lot about murder, but they're aware that bad things do happen. In any event, I read this book in about three weeks. I never told my dad I was reading the book. I did say something to my mother because I had to go to her several times and ask what certain words meant. I didn't ask if she thought it was strange, but she never tried to stop me from reading this book. So that interest in true crime stayed with me all of my life. I got to admit, except for school books, I never read another kid's book after that. I always 
read true crime or war. I know my father, he was in World War II. His brother was killed in the war. His uncle was killed in the war. So I grew up hearing all these stories, watching my dad talk to his friends, all these guys had been in the war over the years. So I had an interest in that. I had an interest in true crime. As a vocation after school, I went into the ministry. And so I am an ordained minister. When people hear that, they say, now, wait a minute. You're telling me that you're a minister and you write true crime. There's something wrong with that picture. Well, I say I like to say I'm a man with feet in both worlds. So I'm kind of semi-retired from the ministry. I still do a lot of that. I have a counseling service. I have things that go on. But I've been writing for the past 25 years. And I started off because I started feeling this. I've been a reader all my life. I wanted to write a book. And I wrote my first book about it was a personality study of a man named George Armstrong Custer, who rose to great fame in the Civil War and then was killed in, at the place called the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And I thought, well, maybe if I just write this book, I'll get this writing bug out of my system. But it didn't happen. So then I started a true crime book, which was later published many years later. And between the Custer book and the second book, that, that didn't get published until after the Bundy murders. But I had a friend by the name of James Massey, Jim Massey, to his friends. He was a probation parole officer here in Louisville. I have to tell you, I never intended to write about Ted Bundy. But Jim had been good friends for about 20 years at the time with a guy named Jerry Thompson, who happened to be a retired homicide investigator for the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office in Salt Lake City, Utah. Jerry was the lead detective in the Bundy case. And so we would talk occasionally about the Bundy case. And Jim worked with a man named Ron Holmes, who also had worked with Ted Bundy at the end of his life. The last, I think, Holmes started working with him in about 1987, 86 or 87. So I got to read a bunch of letters that Bundy had written Holmes. And Bob Keppel, the investigator out of Washington State for the Bundy murders there, told me one day, he said, you know, had Ron Holmes and Bundy not had a falling out, Ron Holmes would have been the guy that Bundy made all his confessions to. Wow. Yeah, but they did have a falling out. But before they had the falling out, Jim Massey was supposed to go. Holmes had already been down to Florida on death row and, and interviewed Bundy practically for four, five, six hours one day. But they were supposed to return to the prison and Massey was going to work the video equipment while Holmes did the interview. Once that fell apart, then that did not happen. So there was an interest in it. I was also made aware that Jerry Thompson, after Bundy was arrested in Utah, they confiscated his murder kit. And then once Bundy was transferred to Colorado, and we can get into this later, but he ended up escaping. He was extradited to Colorado because of the murder of Karen Campbell, and he was on trial there for that. But he escaped, went to Florida, murdered there, finally put to death in the state of Florida in 1989, and Jerry was allowed to keep this murder kit. Well, Thompson and his wife, Jean, were coming to town back in 2005, and I think it was March of 2005, when Jim contacted me and said, the Thompsons are coming to Louisville in May. Would you like to have dinner with us? I said, sure. So two months down the road, I got a call one Sunday night. I knew they were coming in that night. We we're going to have dinner. He called me in the afternoon. He said, listen, we're going to be at such and such restaurant. And I said, thanks for letting me know. I was in the process of staying. I'll see you later, whatever. And he said, he brought the bag. I said, wow. what bag? He said, the murder kid. He brought Ted Bundy, the bag that Bundy used to carry. I said, Jim, could you do me a favor? 
I mean, I felt all this exhilaration rising within me. I kind of felt guilty about it, but I said, I really want to see that stuff. I said, can you meet me at the restaurant earlier? And I'd like to look at it. He said, sure. And so he brought the stuff and there was, Bundy carried a brown satchel. And within that satchel, he had an ice pick. He had a flashlight. He had a woolen ski mask. He had two right-handed gloves, no left-handed. And apparently he used these gloves. He was left-handed, but there's a possibility he had worn the left hands out and he had the right hands in there. But I think probably when Bundy was dragging bodies into the woods and it was cold, he might have used his right hand. But in any event, they had two right-handed gloves. There were glad bags, trash bags, because when Bundy left a victim, he always left them nude with only like a beaded necklace on. And he would take the clothes. I mean, it was before DNA, but you could still match things with hair fibers and stuff like that. And you could get an idea of, you know, who maybe had been killed. Somebody, if Bunny was on trial for something, they say, well, look, you got the head here or something here and it matches her and it matches. But they didn't have the kind of stuff that we can do today. But he would take all the clothes and anything that could have hairs or fibers or imprints of fingerprints, and he put those in a bag and he would dump those down the road somewhere far away from the body. He also had, an, there was an orange electrical cord and he preferred to use that for strangulation. There was also rope. Sometimes he would use rope for strangulation, but usually it was the electrical cord or he might even use a sock. It depends on the situation. All these items in there and there was a pantyhose mask with the eye holes cut out. Now that didn't come to Louisville. The things missing, there were only three things missing from his original kit that weren't there when he came to Louisville. And that was the pantyhose mask that Thompson had taken to Florida to compare with another thing, a pantyhose mask that they found in the apartment of Cheryl Thomas that was disallowed in court, probably in the archives there. The crowbar, Colorado wanted it. And the crowbar is this day in the archives in Colorado. And the handcuffs, I don't think they're in Colorado, but they're probably in Utah, maybe in the third district court, the archives there, I don't know. Can I ask you yes. a quick question about yes. the murder? It's fascinating sure. that you had that yes. you had this was the same in that lucky traffic stop that yes. where Bundy got stopped in Colorado, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? No, he was actually stopped in Utah. Oh, Utah. Pardon me. This is the same murder kit that you now have at your fingertips. Yes, that's the one that I had in my car. In fact, what was so cool, I got to see this stuff that night. And Bunny had also taken bed sheets and torn them into strips. That was her, you know, binding hands and feet. So I got to see all this stuff. I got to meet Thompson. It was really an interesting experience. I wasn't on staff, but I, I would write occasionally for a print newspaper here in Louisville. And it was also published in Lexington, Kentucky, and about four or five other states. It was called Snitch. And it was a print newspaper that came out weekly, devoted to crime and the law. It was a very unique newspaper. I'd written for them. And so I wrote an article about this, and I called it Three Days with Ted Bundy. And I had pictures of the kit and all that stuff. But I didn't have any intention of really writing a book about Bundy. But what happened was... Before Jerry and Gene Thompson went back to Utah, Jim said, come on over to the Breckenridge Inn here in Louisville. And by the way, after dinner, we had gone over to there and Jerry and us and Jim sat around the pool. I got to interview him. So I knew it would be a good article for Snitch. But before they left, I came back over to the Breckenridge Inn and I met Jim and, and Jerry and Gene Thompson. And Jim, we were standing there and Jerry Thompson gave me one of the glad bags from Ted's car wow. that was in the glad box. And he gave Jim one. And I said, Jerry, could you write us a letter 
of authentication? He said, sure. And so he did on um, letterheaded paper from the Breckenridge Inn. So it was really cool. And I remember telling my wife, I said, it was so surreal having had that kid come into my life. It's like somebody knocking on my door and saying, by the way, here's Jack the Ripper stuff. Would you like to hold right. on for, yes. for a while? I forgot to say that before they left, they turned that bag over to Jim for the four days they were here in Louisville because they were going to do sightseeing and things like that. So I called Jim one night. I said, do you mind if I bring the kid over to my house? He said, no, no problem. So I put it in my car at like 930 at night and driving home and I'm passing under street lights and the bag is laying in the passenger side, uh, laying in the passenger seat. I'd go under a street light. It would illuminate it. It was all so surreal. I brought it into the house. I photographed everything. A couple of these pictures have been published in not just my book, The Bundy Murders, but other books of authors. And, and you know, I think safe to say, Kevin, you drove the speed limit that night, right? You I probably did. I did indeed. <laughs> I did indeed. I would not want Ted Bundy's murder kit apprehended once again. Exactly. So we wanted to avoid that. So anyway, it was just so surreal that I decided I was going to write a book about him. And Jim said, and a number of people said, listen, you don't need to do that. Bundy's been done to death. But sometimes, and I've always told people this, you have to go with what you know. And what I knew was I had a burning desire to find out more about the case, more about the man. And I started writing a book. And it was a good thing I did because by the time I got to about midpoint in the book, I was finding out new things about the case that had never been published, including new information about several of the murders. This information was verifiable, Mm -hmm. came from the detectives, and just had been overlooked by other authors. And so when I finished the book in 2008, I sent out six query letters. It didn't even have an agent. I sent out six query letters to some publishers with sample chapters. And McFarland, who published the book almost immediately, within a couple of weeks, got back with me and wanted to sign me to a contract. I ultimately went with them. As soon as I did, another acquisitions editor called me from another publishing house and said, look, I'm willing to verbally offer you a contract on the phone if you'll go with us. I said, I can't. I've already signed something with McFarland. And I wasn't sorry that that I did. But I asked the acquisitions editor, what was it about the book that made you decide so quickly? He said, because of the way you write, your prose, and the depth of your research. It's true. I put a tremendous amount into that book. That book took me about two and a half years to write. I've never written a book like I wrote that book. It was literally 24-7. There were no days off. My wife and I would go out to dinner. I'd get a call from a detective in another state. I'd take the call, I'd come home, I'd watch a little TV with her. I'd go back to my office and I would start writing. And this is the way it was. But it took that long to produce this book. And many people have contacted me over the years. I laugh at it now, but they have said, I've had to read your book two and three times because you crammed so much into it. Very, very in-depth. So thank God. I appreciate it. It's been well-received. I started off a little slow because nobody knew who I was. But after a while, it got going. And and it's just now, whenever these documentaries contact me to, to come on their show, or even if they don't, Apparently, they all are using my book, The Bundy Murders. Now, that book led into five additional books. I've actually got six books. I wrote my last book. It was published in October called The Enigma of Ted Bundy. There were some final things I wanted to say, some new information I wanted to bring out. One of the highlights of my books on Bundy is that each book, there's a lot of new information that has not been in print before. I have been contacted over the years by many, many, many people who knew Bundy or the victims. After I have vetted these people, not all of them were, many were. 
I put these stories in there. And so it's been a good run. It's not anything I expected to do. Kevin, yeah, what but, I just want to stop you for one second. So because for sure. our listeners, most uh, people are familiar with Ted Bundy, but can you kind of give us a bird's eye view? Because I've read different things about Bundy's childhood, sure. let's say, that it sure. was awful, that it was perfectly normal. So take us to Ted a bit and, sure, and tell sure. us a bit about, about yes. him. Because you really do. Sure. I mean, Sarah and I were talking about it. You really hear such varied reports. Yeah, there's actually a lot of myth out there about Bundy. But Bundy was born in 1946. His mother, Louise, had had an affair that didn't turn into anything permanent, obviously. And they think it was uh, with a, a man named Jack Worthington. He was a sailor from the Second World War. They're not sure, but they think that. Now, there are some myths that have surrounded this. One of the greatest myths about this, which I never believed, was that Ted Bundy's father was his grandfather, Samuel Cowell. It's just all me. Right. Well, a friend of mine recently, if any of your listeners saw the HBO documentary about Dr. Lewis, who worked with Bundy at the end, called Crazy Not Insane. We saw it. Apparently, she believed that Sam Cowell was. Well, a friend of mine who has also worked with Dr. Lewis and knows Liz Kendall, which is her real name was Clover, was able to obtain Bundy's DNA. And just as Dr. Lewis said on the program, said DNA has shown that he's not the dad. Thank God someone finally busted that myth. So he's not the father. Whatever else Sam Cow was, Bundy said, I just remembered him as a, uh, a nice grandfather. He respected him. Bundy left there and went to Tacoma. Well, Browns Point, which is about 11 miles from Tacoma, it's a suburban area, I guess, uh, when he was four. She ended up marrying, within a relatively short time, Johnny Bundy, who was a cook at the Madigan Hospital out there. He adopted Ted. Some people think he's a stepfather. He wasn't. He's the adoptive father. And then they went on to have four other children. So there was seven people in their household. Now, here's another big myth, and I've always battled this. People think that Ted, and I've heard some Bundy authors say it, not going, you know, you, you're incorrect. They think he grew up and they believe that his mother was his sister and that his grandparents were his parents. Well, if there was any confusion about that, I guarantee you that was fixed before she left for Tacoma or Browns Point. Mm -hmm. There is a part in your book where you describe, uh -huh. I believe it's Bundy's grandmother, and she uh -huh. says even at the age of three, yeah. she noticed that Ted would switch into this person, this sort of demon child almost that she didn't want yes. to be. Can you kind of describe that? Because yes. I find that fascinating in the face of our serial killers born oh, sure. or made sure. type of thing. So can you describe that passage? Right. It gave me shivers and I had never heard yeah. that before. Yes, there's actually two stories to that. Both of these came from Bundy's aunts. It could be the same one or it could be another one. But here's the story. The first one was that when Ted, I think this might be right before Louise moved away, but one of his uh, aunts woke up uh, one morning and Ted had taken kitchen knives and placed them under the bed pointing at her. When she looked at him, he had this kind of blank look on his face. You know, you don't have to be a psychologist to know that there could be something amiss with that. It, it isn't normal. The other story has to do with when she was on a train platform in Philadelphia and it was, it was approaching dusk and she said that something occurred within the little boy that caused his like personality. It looked like he was, she didn't use the word morphine, but it was something akin to that. And he was changing and it disturbed her. I would say that what, I, I don't believe that anything had happened to Bundy to really cause any of this, 
I do believe there was probably something that he was born with that was not quite right. Bundy was never insane, obviously, although you might want to say legally not insane, but the things he did certainly were diabolical. You know, you and I would call a person like that crazy, right, in our terminology, but he's not, not legally insane. But he had something wrong with him. And I make a distinction in my book that it's one thing to grow up and not understand yourself. Bundy would later tell a writer, he said he had these good friends. He had two good friends, Terry Storwood and Warren Dodge. But he said, I grew up not really understanding how to be a friend. He never felt exactly right. He felt like he was different. But there's one thing to have a youth growing up having these issues. And then it's quite something else when they turn into a predator later on. And so your sympathy for Bundy can be right along with him until a point. And then when he makes a decision as he's approaching adulthood, he's going to have a predatory life against women. Then that's something else. So in Bundy's case, I like to say they're never going to figure it out. You mark this down. They won't figure exactly out what makes these people tick. A scientist can look at changes within the brain and they can look at physiological changes. They can look at these changes, maybe chemically in the brain. But when you ask them, but why? They don't know. So I think part of it is how he was born, and the other part is the way he developed. When you are growing up and you start getting sexual feelings, normally you'll have fantasies and things like that. That's all normal, and they won't contain violence. But along the way, of course, he started mixing his fantasies with violence, and that led to the place where at some point in the future you're going to pass from fantasy into reality. In the case of Ted Bundy, here's what we know for certain, that he launched himself in a full-time murder at the dawn of 1974. What age do you think his first kill? I mean, I know we have the first confirmed, but what age do you think he first killed at? Well, he never admit, okay, so if you, you know, we're looking at Bundy's first murders too. Some people think he killed little Anne-Marie Burr. If he did commit that, he always denied it. But with Ron Holmes, he absolutely linked himself to it. And again, remember what Keppel said, that before the falling out, Ted had planned to confess everything to Holmes. And I have this in the book. He definitely linked himself to it. And the person responsible was also a person, as he said, that they were looking in because of the murders up in Lake Sammamish, which, of course, is him. And he knew what he was talking about. So he may have killed at 14 at the age of 14, because she disappeared on September 1st, the early morning hours of September 1st, 1961. And so he would have been 14 at the time. So And he lived oh, he lived in that area, is that right? He had a bike. He was about two miles from that house, but his uncle, Jack Cow, lived at a studio fairly close by. If Bundy would not have connected himself so clearly to Ron Holmes about it, I would more be in, be saying that probably, no, he didn't probably commit that murder because there are some logistical things. But when it comes to Bundy, it wouldn't take much for Bundy to do that. And the kind of things that Bundy told Holmes were the kind of things you think, yeah, he did commit this murder. So if he did kill this girl and they never found her, then he probably knew of her or knew of the home or had seen her near to where his uncle lived. And that could have produced this nocturnal roaming around their house and then that entering one night and then it it happened. A friend of mine believes Bundy might have even, even though he was 14, might have borrowed a car. And that would not be out of the realm of possibility. And because at the time, I'm sure he knew how to drive a car at 14. And slipping out in the middle of the night is something a lot of teenagers have done. So, And it would have been easier with a car. So we can't rule it out. So I kind of lean towards Bundy committing that murder. 
but I do leave it open for it, it may have been somebody else, but I certainly lean that way. And so does my friend who's done a lot of investigation in the case. And in fact, he said that Bundy admitted to Dr. Lewis something about his first crime occurring like when he was 14. But his so, first confirmed kill is once he goes away to college. Now, here's what he told Bob Keppel. Bob Keppel handled all the Washington murders. All the detectives came from the states where these murders occurred. So Bunny didn't convince everything to Keppel. But because it all started in Washington State, Keppel was pressing him. And he admitted the murdering 11 in the state, but he would not own up to more than eight of those names. There were several he would not talk about. So when Keppel pressed him about anything before 74, he did admit the 1973 killing a hitchhiker south of Seattle that he picked up in Tumwater, Washington, and he murdered her. But he then said there was a homicide in 72, but then immediately retracted it. And nobody, including Keppel, believes that he just made a mistake. He probably killed in 72. So Hmm. And he would have been like 26 at the time. But does it make sense, though? It seems to me if he murdered Burr when he was 14, mm-hmm. I bet you there was murders in between, maybe more sporadic. But if he murdered at 14, why take a 12-year break, basically? Yeah, it really depends on you know where he was. It maybe depends on some things that he thought about himself. We don't know. He admitted later when he had gone back east to live back in 1969, that he wanted to abduct a woman. He, he saw himself as a, um, like he was bubbling over with aggression. I mean, that's a given. But he wasn't very skilled at being an abductor. Now, if he did kill Burr, getting into the home, which whoever did this, they took a bench and they overturned it and they stepped up through an unlocked window. In fact, it had a... Uh, cable that ran through it and they must have spotted that the window was not completely closed went in there led the girl out of the, very bold for this person and the only thing he left there was like grass clippings everybody was asleep so i don't know how he or this person pulled it off but we can't really automatically say that then because we just don't know it maybe he killed additional people but maybe he didn't and maybe he went for a number of years and didn't so we don't know and yeah. we do know this that in 1974 he reached a psychological place within him that he was going to totally, wholly turn himself over to murder to where he was no longer going to continue the charade of his political life or anything. He was going to launch himself into full-time murder and he just wasn't going to come back from it. And he didn't. It seems like the charade was in the service of his primary career, which was murder now. You know, it was like he yes. kept up the charade, but it was only yes. to seem like he was legitimate and you right. know, then had to right. Let me ask you one quick question. So one of his very important first relationships, right, was with Diane Edwards. And Diane yes. was, she seems like she was from a certain socioeconomic class. She's very pretty, yes. brunette, yes. middle part. They say mm-hmm. that Bundy kind of imprinted his victimology on Edwards, which I'm not sure if that's true or not. Yeah. One theory that Laura and I were bantering around about was that mm-hmm. he felt less than with Diane Edwards. He felt like he couldn't give her the lifestyle she wanted. He mm-hmm. couldn't buy her clothes. He felt less than. And we kind of have toyed with the idea of the reason why he went for college girls 
maybe had something to do going back to his resentment of Diane and the world that she came from. Well, when it comes to feeling less than, it turns out he felt less than a lot of people. And he would often, embarrassingly so, voice his feelings of lack to certain women. And, you know, he would just run himself down. So, you know, he wouldn't really do that with men. But I think Bundy always struggled to see himself as unequal. But in Diane's case, she did come from a well-to-do family in San Francisco. And Bundy's family was struggling to be middle class. But because, you know, the father, both parents, of course, had to work. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the father worked at Madigan Hospital. And he adopted father. And he, he never made a great deal of money. And, of course, the mom used to work. But, you know, Louise... So he wasn't from that thing. But Diane did see things in Bundy that she liked. But now there were things with Bundy that were classic examples of his inability to be faithful to women sexually or even in how Bundy viewed women. Like, for example, he would mooch off Diane. And uh, uh, there's been stories that he used her credit card. And there were things that irritated her. But what really got Diane out of sync with Bundy had to do with if she felt and there was any lack of drive or he's not going somewhere or mm-hmm. he's just, that was a turn off to her. And it is true that when she finally broke off that relationship, that really, really devastated Bundy. And of course, later he would win her back when he was a law student with the promise of marriage and she agreed to it and he had no intention of marrying her. It was just a way to pay her back. And basically he was able to dump her. But if you look at the women that Bundy killed, a lot of people, I think they make too much of what happened with Diane because you've got to understand, Bundy was already thinking in predatory ways even when he was with her. So there are psychological factors that if somebody has a certain makeup that an emotional experience can trigger violence and trigger murder. And that's true. But let's say that Diane never broke up with him. And let's say Bundy actually thought, well, maybe I, I don't have to be a diabolical killer. I'll marry her. Let's say he would have done that. Would he not have killed? No, he would still have murdered. Why right. would he have murdered? Because he had that in him. Here's what he told Bill Hagmar at the end. He said, Bill, I don't understand why people just can't understand that I enjoyed killing people. It's really that simple. He enjoyed it. And people think, oh, he was pressed into it. He didn't want to do it. The desires were overwhelmed. No, they're totally missing who Bundy was. Bundy absolutely loved the idea of capturing women, possessing them, toying with them, murdering them. And the whole thing was about possessing them all the way to the place where you extinguish their life. And, of course, there was sex with the victims prior to their murder. There was, I remember Hagmar told me one day on the phone, he said Ted Bundy had a common M.O. And what that was is that he would have sex with them from behind, either vaginal or anal, and he would strangle them as he's having and sex with him. And that was important to him. That's what he really enjoyed doing. The MO could change on occasion, but that's basically how he he would do it. Sometimes he wouldn't want his victims to even know what's going on to them. And other times he wanted them very much to know what was going on. And when those things occurred, it was psychological torture. Some people believe that he physically tortured people. I don't see that. I don't think that it's impossible. Yeah, it is. But no, I don't get that. But sometimes, you know, like I say, he wanted them out doing what he wants, like his own little doll there, and he could do whatever he wanted to, and they're not going to say anything. 
And then other times he wanted to, it's just like the murdering of the Lake Sammamish victims. He purposely kept Janice all alive. He got her in before noon and sexually assaulted her somewhere. I think he had tied to a tree up in the hills of Issaquah. Came back and got Denise Naslin. Now, if he wanted to spare Denise any horror, he would have at least killed Ott and gotten rid of her and gone back and gotten his second victim. But no, that's not what he did. That's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to bring the captured Denise Naslin that he got around 430 at Lake Sammamish back and introduce her to Ott. Both of these women knew what was going to happen. And of course, you can imagine the fear. And Bunny would talk about it later, the amount of fear that was there. They said that they exchanged a lot of words. He said, no, no, they didn't. Just a lot of fear. And they were all consumed with what was going to happen to them. So what happened there? That's the case. He wanted to be fueled by that horror and terror. The worst thing that could happen to them was about to happen. Well, do you think it was, you know, he was escalating and upping his game and what he needed to turn him on or to, you know, because he seemed like he liked the game. He liked the chase. He liked, but he kept, you know, to even capture two women on one day was so risky. I mean, he just seemed like he really liked this high behavior. He overstepped his boundaries at Lake Sammamish, and ultimately that's kind of where he really set some things in motion that would come back to haunt him later. Because people did see him, people overheard him say that he was Ted. Right. He followed them to his car. They found that it was a beige VW, this guy named Ted. So it really hurt him later on. And really, I've had a theory about Lake Sammamish that I hadn't written about until the enigma of Ted Bundy. And I first announced it publicly September of 2019 at a serial killer conference in Pittsburgh that I spoke at. But if you look at Lake Sammamish, when Bundy first started a murder in 1974, he began in the middle of the night. And then it was earlier in the night. And then by April of that year, he was seen on campus at Central Washington State College, which is across the Cascade Mountains to the uh, east of Seattle. And he was seen in the afternoon, but he didn't capture Rancourt until that night. And then by the time he hit Lake Sammamish, I think he was trying to make a statement. He was so bold and really, in a sense, so reckless that he wanted to expose them. There were 40,000 people there that day. 40,000. There were company picnics. One of them was a police department. And, you know, the cake tossed. And you know, unbelievable. He was impervious to fear. And what's so tragic is that his ability to come in and abduct women without anybody really knowing what's going on, it was just astounding. And it was the kind of stuff of horror movies. Well, after Lake Sammamish happened, the police said, well, you know, the worst we feared is true. These previous women that had disappeared from the early point of 1974 to now, strange disappearances, well, that's off the table. We have somebody out there who's taking and killing women. Well, Bundy, you know, he got to see all the attention that he got. There were composite drawings. Some of them didn't look so good. Some of them looked, well, maybe, whatever. But he drove a beige Volkswagen. His name was Ted. He thought, well, maybe I've bitten off a little more than I can chew. Then from then on, this is the theory I had about He went immediately back into nighttime murders. And he did not surface again that we know of from July 14th of 74. He didn't surface again until following in, I think, of April 75 during the abduction of a woman named Denise Oliverson in Grand Junction, Colorado. So he kind of went back under the cover of darkness after Lake Sammamish. I don't recall he talked about this to anybody, why he did that, but I figured out from just studying his life for years that he absolutely did. So I I talk about that in the Enigma of Ted Bundy. So I think he felt he pushed it a little bit too much there. But the thing about Bundy was he just, he really, really enjoyed 
committing these murders. And by that time, you know, in 1974, when he first started this, he couldn't do both. So he had to let some of his political duties slide. And he right. would not be at certain conferences and things like that. I write in the Bundy murders at a woman at a caucus uh I think that summer, uh, Helen West, she was an alternate delegate. She had to take Bundy's place because he wasn't there. But you can only do so much in life. So he's busy with all this murder and stuff. But uh, yeah, anyway. And, and he's kind of smiling. And just to cut ahead a little, because we could talk about Bundy's murders for hours. You know, it's ironic that what gets him caught is, you know, it's a taillight, isn't it? Well, it's you a little know, bit more than that. No, it's actually what happened was he was so... Or he's driving so slow. Oh, the, his lights are out and he's driving slow around yeah, the neighborhood well, at night. There was a guy named Bob Hayward. He was the brother of the homicide captain at the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office. His name was Pete Hayward. Bob Hayward was a, a patrol officer with the Utah Highway Patrol. He was coming home one night and he said later, he said, my neighborhood has had a rash of burglaries. He happened to see Bundy. I think Bundy drove by him once, but when Hayward saw him again and he was watching him, he was sitting there. Apparently, Bundy was smoking a joint in Granger, Utah, and I think he was consulting a map. So here comes Hayward. He's, he turns his lights on. Bundy freaks out completely, takes off. He can't outrun this police car. And so he pulls over, you know, like four or five blocks away. And Bundy lied. He, he was a liar. But, you know, you think he would have admitted later to other people what he was doing when, when the rubber was really meeting the road. But when Hayward pull him over and, and Bundy got out and Hayward got out and Hayward's got his gun on him. He looks in the VW and the passenger seat has been removed. So he was absolutely hunting that night. And he laid that in the back seat and the murder kit, the brown satchel was open and some of the contents was spilling out. So apparently he had had an unsuccessful night of hunting. Later, he, after he was on trial, he would still say, I wasn't hunting that night. But he was hunting and there's the evidence for it. So that's how he was captured. Now, at the time, they arrested him for evading a police officer and possession of burglary tools. But Andrew Valdez, which is mentioned in my book, The Bundy Murders, although I didn't interview Andrew for that book, I, I think I interviewed Andrew, Andrew Valdez for my fourth book, Ted Bundy's Murderous Mysteries. Valdez said that that, because Valdez was in law school along with Bundy, but he also worked at the jail and he was responsible for taking people in, see what the charges are. Then they had a point system. And if you had lived there, you're a student. A lot of people knew you'd been there like a year, whatever. You could be released on your own recognizance. Well, he knew Bundy. Here comes Bundy. And Valdez said that the charge later, he said that a lot of times the officers, if they saw a something like what Bundy was carrying, they would call them burglary tools. But it's obvious that what he had in there was a lot more than burglary tools. And when the detective Andrak showed up on the scene, when Hayward placed Bundy under arrest, this is August 16, 1975, Andrak looks at the car. He sees what that stuff is. He knows he's more than a burglar. But they used that thing, burglary tools, as a way to kind of pull them in. And then they could amend the charge later and maybe even drop the charge. So that's how he was captured. And, of course, here's the thing about Bundy. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know the magnitude of what they had right. that August, okay? So that he never saw his kid again. His car was impounded for a while, later released him. But here's what, but between August and October, things were going to change for Bundy because the detectives in the area would meet every like Tuesday morning to go over what had happened in their specific little cities surrounding Salt Lake. And on one of these meetings, Jerry Thompson 
heard of this Bundy fella who had been arrested driving a Volkswagen and he had handcuffs and this kit. And Bundy said, wait a minute, when the meeting was over, he goes back to his Rolodex. That's what they had back then. Tell young people now, they, they, they don't know what it is. <laughs> and he looked and he found Theodore Bundy because what happened was when Bundy was a, a suspect up in Washington State, but not a likely one, but his name was turned in several times as driving a Volkswagen and Ted, all that stuff. And he kind of weird. One of the guys said he's kind of weird. They contacted Utah. Uh, the homicide department said, look, there's a guy coming down to go to law school there. We want to give you his name and stuff, but we don't think he's he's our guy. Mm-hmm. Well, Thompson remembers that name, goes back and checks it. Oh, so Thompson burrows into him and starts investigating. And that's how it really came out. And so by October of that year, Bundy was charged with the kidnapping of Carol Ranch. And of course, he would ultimately go to trial for that in February of 76 and would be convicted. He would receive a one to 15 year sentence at what they call nicknamed Point of the Mountain Prison. It's the Utah State Prison. And uh, so he had one to 15 years to do. But then, of course, Mike Fisher, the Colorado investigator, was the first person to ever get a warrant placed against Bundy for murder. In this case, Colorado, the murder of Karen Campbell. And that's ultimately why he was transferred out of the state. But unfortunately, that wasn't the end of his killing. No, no, because, and it's really <laughs> Which is, like I was going to say, you know, every, I know this story so well, but every time I see it, it's like, I keep thinking, oh, I wish it would end there. It's just so unnecessary what happens next. That, that it, it's, so un, it's so unavoidable what happens too. Like, yeah. Avoidable. Yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, it, yeah, like it just never, he never should have. And, and you wonder if, no. if he wasn't so smooth and likable and, you know, if he had been a big, scary, uh, tattooed man, right. if he would have been given the, the same freedom. Well, I, I go into it in the Bundy murders from the moment he hit Aspen and was in the jail, which is in the, it's actually called the Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen. At the time Bundy was there, it was already 100 years old. And so he, Bundy did what he always did. He started being very charming and everybody seemed to like him. And but just, they trusted him. They called him Ted. Jerry Thompson and Mike Fisher warned them over and over again. This guy's on trial for the murder of Karen Campbell, and he's suspected of murdering dozens of women in other states. you got to watch him very closely. Well, so Bundy, uh, in springtime, they got the courthouse window open. He jumps out of, uh, it's a second floor, but it's really two and a half stories because uh, the basement comes out about a half a story. So he had a 25-foot drop. And he jumped out of the courthouse window one day, running down the street and got away. He was gone for about a week. They captured him. He was put in leg irons. And later, he was transferred to the Glenwood Springs Jail. And you would think that having been escaped once, that they would have secured Bundy. But here's what they did at, at the jail in Glenwood Springs. They put him in a, a cell that had a light fixture that was due to be welded. It hadn't been welded. But the truth of the matter is, I just didn't think, I don't think they cared about welding it. You can get somebody in there to weld it relatively quick amount of time. But the, the place was filled with drunks, bad check writers, people that do stuff. But here is a violent individual accused of murder, many murders. They put him in there. Bundy was able to widen it. And he would go up in the raft, not the raft area, but like the ductwork at night. It was, it was a one-floor jail. And the prisoners came to the guards and said, listen, we hear Bundy at night going up through the... This, this blows my this, mind. This, 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 is, this is, makes me crazy. He's, he's crawling around. He's crawling around. This isn't one prisoner did this. A number of them said it. Bundy's up on the thing. He's crawling around at night. They didn't do anything about it. So... The two Chi Omega sisters that were murdered in Florida 
and young 12-year-old Kimberly Leach that he got on February 9, 1978, didn't have to die. No. And no, so they disregarded the warnings of Jerry Thompson. They disregarded the warnings of Mike Fisher. And if you look, there's a nice, a very well done interview with Bundy in the Glenwood Springs jail. And you can see, well, this is the quality of the people they hire. You can see this old man in the back. He's one of the jailers. Bundy could have taken him and just tied him in a knot in two seconds. The guy couldn't have fought his way out of a beanbag. He couldn't have done it. The quality of the people they hired must have been absolutely atrocious yeah. to get this. And Thompson told me, and I, for the Enigma book, I had transcribed all of the tapes of Dave Thompson and others that I did originally for the Bundy murders. And he said he had warned them on numerous occasions. And they said, no, Jerry, don't worry about it. We, we could make Bundy a trustee. He's not going to do anything. And so Thompson told me, and it's in the book, I said, did you ever say anything to them afterwards? He said, oh, yeah, I rubbed it in. I kept rubbing it in. I said, he's going to kill again. You know, he's going to kill again. And of course he did. So terrible thing. Those people in Florida should have never, ever been attacked and murdered. And it's all the fault of Colorado. I don't know if there were lawsuits about it. Jerry Thompson told me, he said, families from Florida after all of this happened were contacting him saying, can we get attorneys and sue? He said, well, yeah, I'm not an attorney. That's out of my ballpark. You'll have to do that. But certainly they had a case. I don't know what came of that. Do you think by that time... Awful. He had just lost all control and he was just in a frenzy. Yeah. By the time he got to Florida, yeah. mur murders were just so messy. So do you think he had just lost all control? In Colorado, he hadn't experienced that yet. But by the time he got to Florida, and when I say that, he was certainly spiraling downward. People that saw him were like the hotel he checked into the night before he killed Kim Leach. He said he was dirty and unkempt. And this was unlike Bundy. He signed in using one stolen credit card, but then he was at the bar. He used another name of a stolen credit card that didn't match the one he was supposed to be using. He was making mistakes that he shouldn't have been making. Right. Uh, and so th that's true. And if you look at the murder at Chi Omega, if you're a detective and you're looking at that murder, which was like a frenzy, and you're saying, oh, I got a call about this guy Bundy, but you're telling me he sought out victims this way and that way. Well, this, this is a completely different kind of MO. What happened to Kyle Omega, it had been over two and a half years since he'd killed or, or thereabouts. And when that genie of murder rose in him again, it was just an absolute frenzy. And so right. he attacked and savagely beat four people and strangled two, killed two of them. He wasn't even satiated for the night. He left about 3.15 a.m., the Chi Omega, went down the steps and out the front door. And Nita Neary, who had just come in, was hiding in the darkness and saw Bundy come down, did a perfect composite drawing of Bundy's profile with a nose, that very straight nose he had. And he had a cap on, and he carried the log that he had picked up before he went in Chi Omega and beat these women with. And most of the bark was left in the room. And he carried that log and was spotted by a guy driving down the street around 3.15. The guy said he was trying to conceal something. And he used that same log to attack Cheryl Thomas in her duplex apartment about four or five blocks away on Dunwoody Avenue. She lived because of her neighbor, Debbie Sicarelli, next door and the other, pounding on the thing, calling. And Bundy had every intention of murdering her. He had already beat her severely. He was already taking his clothes off. He was going to 
have sex with her from behind, do the same thing he always does. Couldn't do it. Too much activity there. Afraid they're gonna, the woman will call the police. He masturbated and left the semen stain, but he went back through the woman's window and out the door. But just after Kyle Omega, he wasn't satiated. Having gotten that under his belt again, he became a little more careful. On, I should say also that right before he went into Kyle Omega that night, he went into Sherrod's, some people say Sherrod's. Next door was a disco. And instead of like in Washington State, drawing women to him, he was repulsing them. They were getting these bad vibes from him. I mean, he was just, so he was having a meltdown. Now, after he murdered Kyle Omega, you see him when he almost killed Leslie Parmenter, which I interviewed for one of my books, that she had left her school and Bundy was talking to her. She said he also looked dirty. He seemed weird, so he had lost that. But he was, after Kyle Omega, he was back into his kind of like old hunting mode. He was trying to duplicate with some one-on-one victims like he had done back in Utah and in Washington State. So he was definitely on a downward slide. Mike Fisher said, listen, you got to get to him quickly after he's abducted because he'll tell more. He'll talk more if he's tired. He said, if you give him a chance to get rested and renewed, he'll climb up on you and then, and then yeah. he'll be in control. So that's yeah. kind of basically what happened after a while. But then once Buddy was cleaned up and his attorneys got him cleaned up, he didn't have that weird look anymore. He was totally recuperated. He was now the man falsely accused, so on and so forth. I think Ted Bundy had a great ability to change his affect, to change his whole look. I think he was, whatever the word is, decompensating or or devolving when he got to Florida. I think he'd been living in prison. He'd been living rough. But I wonder also if there isn't a little bit of, I'm going to do, I'm going to murder, but my MO is going to be totally different. And they're never going to connect Western Ted to my actions here. One question I had also just about his victimology in general. A lot of serial killers, they choose prostitutes, they choose homeless women. In some cases, he chose hitchhikers, but he chose college girls. He chose the one that really spooks me is the murder at the Wildwood Inn where a woman goes, yeah, Yeah. gets to, goes up to her room to get a magazine from her hotel room. And it's it's snatched. I wonder if his, and I believe he was compulsed by the desire to kill. I think Kimberly Leach also was such a, I almost feel like he who's incapable of, of shame was even ashamed of going after a victim that young. But can you talk to us a little bit about his victimology, why he chose? Yes. Yes. And I can tell you two things. When it came to confessing murders, Buddy did not have any problem telling what he had done to college-aged women. He did have a real problem, though, discussing the murder of teenage or preteen girls. We know he killed two that were 12, Lynette Culver out of Pocatello, Idaho, which that's one of the cases where I got a lot of new information that had not been out there yet. And Kim Leach was the last victim. She was also 12. Now, he would later say, I, I thought the girl in Pocatello, when told her, was a little bit older. Like that would have made, like 14 or 15, like that would have made any difference. But here's the thing about Bundy. When you look at who he wouldn't name, he said, I killed 11 in Washington State. He would only divulge the names of eight. He told the Utah detectives, I killed eight in your state. He would not give any other names other than five victims. You got to ask yourself, who are the ones he's not naming? I believe the ones he's not naming are young girls. When I was writing right. the Bunny Murder, I gathered missing women and murdered women from surrounding states sure. that had been made part of the case files in various areas. I believe, and Bundy even says himself in the third person, 
to one of these people, I think in this case a writer. He's speaking of another serial killer, but he's really talking about himself. This is Steve Steve Michaud. Yes. And then he also spoke in the third person of Ron Holmes. He did it with more than Michaud, but but Michaud came up with that. And it's a good thing he did because Bundy wouldn't have said anything without it. So it was a great thing that happened. And I'm glad Michaud thought of that because you got a lot of information. Most of the stuff he told Michaud, you can just, it, that, that's that's exactly what happened. You will find a few things that he told Michaud that are a little different than the end of life confessions where he was completely honest saying, I did this, I did that. One of those things where he tells a story about the one girl in Utah, her name slips me now, but he changed it a little bit at the final confession. So I don't know why that happened, but you'll see just tiny differences. But the third person confessions are great because Bunny felt free, he could talk. So what you have here, he said on one of these things, it could have been a tape to Keppel. This particular thing I'm telling you might not have been to Michelle. It, it could have been to Keppel. He said, but the serial killer, he may have killed up to said a half a dozen or a dozen preteen girls. <laughs> and so Bundy and those he did not want to talk about. He almost felt like, I don't mind if you know me, I'm a slaughter of college age women, but I don't want to right. admit to the 12 or under. And there's one case I found of a girl that disappeared in, in Washington State. She was 10. Mm. And it really looks like he did. Man. It really looks like he did. And I don't believe that was ever. So he probably, and, and for my book that just uh, came out, I interviewed a, a lady that now she was 12 years old and Bundy tried to abduct her as she was on her way to the school bus. And I've checked this mm. and stuff. It's all validated. And you want to know something weird? My friend who also has done a lot of investigation of the case. He found another young girl this 12 years old, who is not the one that I interviewed. Wow. That okay. also pointed to Bundy and said he tried to get me one morning. So there's a lot of them out there. I think there's a good number of dead teen or preteen girls, and they never found them. And it's Bundy. He wouldn't talk about it. But well, it makes sense. The MO yeah. did change. But the MO did change. You know how I said the MO could change with Bundy some? And it did when the case of when he uh, abducted and he was spiraling out of control when he abducted Kim Leach at the end. What he did right. was he actually, he had purchased a hunting knife just that day or the day before. And the receipt was found in the stolen FSU media van. And he actually, what they believe, what the ME believes, the medical examiner, he believes that he cut her throat while having sex with her from behind. So that's, by the time they found her, there was, she had been ravaged by animals, but everything that he put together, they figured that's the way he did it, that he did not strangle her as normal, but that he cut her with a knife. When his stolen VW got stuck at Eglin Air Force Base, and he had to dump a bunch of stuff out of it when he was making his way from Tallahassee to Pensacola to escape, he dumped a lot of stuff out. He finally had to call somebody to help him get the VW out. The detectives went back to the scene and they found yet another electrical cord, and some other things as well. And they must have looked at the electrical cord and went, huh, I wonder what this is for. Well, of course, that's for strangling. Now, it was yeah. for Kimberly Leach's death that he would be put to death, correct? Absolutely, so, yes. For a second time, though, I believe. Is the, that correct? That's what he's yeah. ultimately executed for. Yeah, he was actually convicted and sentenced to death first during the trial of Kyle Omega. Right. But he was then convicted in the Kim Leach murder and it just so happens his date set for that went through and, you know, that happened in 1989. Many people don't realize, but that Bundy was given uh, the chance to confess to the Florida murders. He could have spent the rest of his life in a prison in Florida. 
but he rejected I know that. I'm actually opposed to the death penalty, but I, I actually think yeah. we could have learned a lot more from him, having him alive yeah. in life without, life without parole. We actually have George Deckel coming up on an upcoming episode. Mm-hmm. For actually, for for a book he wrote about a, a Gilded Age crime, yeah. so a very unrelated yeah, yeah. book. It's got a good book. listen, Deckel not only believes in the death penalty. He said on one documentary that we were both on. He said, "I'd like to kill Ted, bring him back up. Kill Ted, bring him back up. Kill Ted, bring him back up." I gotta admit, I, I could flip the switch on Ted myself. I would have absolutely no problem doing yeah. that. No, no, I I totally get yeah. it. If anyone deserved it, it was yeah. Ted. I just yeah. wish he was around so we could study him and yeah. and really figure you know, out and just kind of really the rest of the really victim, figure yeah. out more. Thankfully, we got a lot from him. That's one thing that's really good. And Bundy never wanted to talk about a lot of those things, and and he finally had to at the end for his bones for time dealing with the authorities. So he really did say a lot. Now there are some things I think about Bundy. He would no matter what. He was never going to talk about, and that's probably going to be go back to the uh, the kids that were twelve and under. Kevin, I just wanted because we have to wrap up fairly soon, but sure. Which one of your books do you detail those sort of mystery murders, or is this the next book for Kevin Sullivan? Oh no, no, no! I've written six books. I've it's over fourteen hundred pages about Bundy. I'll I'll never write another book about Bundy. I might write an article. Or, uh, that's what you, you know, said about the first him. one, Kevin. Okay. I did. So we- I did. Look, I can't go, what? I can't go on. Uh, 1,400 pages. It's got to stop somewhere. But, uh, <laughs> we encourage everyone to get Kevin's books. I'm actually really curious, which of your books do you talk about his possible victims, not as confirmed victims? Because I would be very interested in looking yeah. that up and probably our listeners yeah, yeah. too. Yeah, I, I talk about Ted Bundy's Murderous Mysteries is about deeper look at the victim. But I talk about other victims and a lot of things involved with the case I couldn't really talk about in the previous books. And you'll find that in The Enigma of Ted Bundy. And that was just Great. released again in October. Okay, terrific. I think I just wanted to say the continuous fascination with Ted Bundy is, you know, I think that we almost feel like if we understand Ted Bundy, we understand evil. And the scariest part of Ted Bundy is that he looks like girlfriend would bring him over and you'd say, oh, he's a great guy. Oh, yeah. And that's the really scary, insidious part. We'd love to think we could recognize evil. And that way we feel like we can protect ourselves. And when we see somebody so normal, and I think that is really the big part of the fascination with Ted Bundy and and continues to be. Thank you, Kevin, so much for giving us a deeper look into who Ted Bundy was. If we really only just touched on it because it's such an enormous case, Um, but you're just fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's he's America's Jack the Ripper. And I don't expect Jack absolutely. And I don't expect Bundy to go anywhere because when when Bundy and other serial killers, there's a lot of mouth there, but Nobody really compares with with what Bundy was. So I just wanted to end on this particular note because it it struck me. I was talking to Laura about this this morning, and when all this madness subsides, Laura and I will fly down to Louisville and come bug you and your (laughs) wife. Anyway, one thing I wanted to say: so an ongoing theme for us in Ivy Mm -hmm. League murders is that sure we find all of these murders and murderers who are amazing in their field, they're gaming experts, mm-hmm. or they're yeah. world-renowned doctors, but they're terrible at yes. murdering people. I think it's a very opposite thing with Ted Bundy. He could not be great in real life. He mm-hmm. was really right. mediocre, but I have to say, right. 
I think he was a very successful serial killer. If that is, you know, I know that's a controversial thing to say, but his whole device of fooling women and no, he had a PhD in it. He he was an expert predator really is what he was. Well, let me leave you with this because you're onto something with that. When a lady named Dawn Kraut was talking to Bundy after Bundy was had been arrested, he was right before he went to trial, and he was released from Utah on bail, went home for a couple months. It's the last time he was in Seattle at the University of Washington. He, this lady named Dawn Kraut spotted him and got to talking to him. And as they talked about the case, she said, well, I'm sure people will forget one day, trying to make him feel better. He said, oh, no, 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 people won't forget. And he was very... In a sick way, he was very proud of the name he had made for himself. Mm-hmm. And he, so he's taken that place in history. A buddy could come back to life now and see how many books have been published and the document. He would be overwhelmed with joy. Yeah. And people were paying that much attention to him. That's the way it is, I guess. It's, All right. it's well, very thanks for having me on. Kevin, thanks, what a Kevin. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. Okay, we'll see you next time. Murder, murder.